Welcome back to Reality Asserts Itself. I'm Paul Jay. This is The Real News Network, and we're continuing our discussion with Daniel Ellsberg. Thanks for joining us again. Good to be here. If I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, that with a hydro hydrogen bomb, these kinds of firestorms and the kind of smoke that gets created, it doesn't matter about the second strike. A first strike is the end of all life. And if that's the case, it's not even a deterrent anymore. Well, uh, uh, being able to end life on Earth is a deterrent if you can make it plausible that you might do it. And actually, it's all too plausible that under various circumstances, this system might be set off. That's pretty deterrent uh, indeed, but it's at the cost of accepting the possibility of the destruction of civilization or of life. But we haven't quite gotten to why that is the effect. What the thermonuclear weapons did was to raise the level of damage out of the World War II category of tens of millions, 60 million, 10 times more than that, 600 million, and really twice as much as that if in various other calculations, a billion or so, perhaps a third of the population of the Earth at that time, which was 3 billion. Or now, the corresponding thing would be something more than 2 billion people. However, the smoke, rather than the radioactivity fallout from the thermonuclear weapons, turns out to be what kills nearly everyone. And that was a, a factor of a nuclear war that wasn't even considered till 1983, after the uh, models, the computation models, of what happened to the dinosaurs had begun coming out in 1979, 80, 81. Uh, they began to look at what will happen to the smoke. Given that a firestorm caused by any nuclear weapon, like not just a few incendiaries, but any nuclear weapon will give you the firestorm effect with the extreme updraft, which lifts the smoke into the stratosphere where it doesn't rain out. Unlike uh, even a lot of smoke in the troposphere or the, the lower atmosphere of the Earth, as in the Gulf War when the oil wells were burning in the desert, that smoke fairly soon came out of the air, did not have a global or even major regional effect. But the smoke that's lofted into the stratosphere uh, by the nuclear weapons stays there for a decade or more. The first models only could look as far as a year or so, but even that meant that the smoke from a war between the U.S. and Russia with enough cities burning uh, and lofted in the stratosphere would reduce about 70% of the sunlight around the Earth, including the southern hemisphere. The radioactive fallout stays mainly in the hemisphere where the explosions occur. Winds from the equator uh, keep it up there, basically. So the south, southern hemisphere is not so strongly affected. The smoke goes around the Earth very quickly, and it destroys all the harvests. In fact, it would create ice age conditions uh, on the surface of the Earth, even in the summer, with uh, frozen lakes and rivers and whatnot, but in particular, killing all the harvests worldwide. The global supply of food is about 60 days, concentrated in a few countries like ours that export a lot of grain or soybeans, like China as well. So we'd last months longer without exporting than other countries which would starve faster. But within a year, 
something like 97-8-9% of humans would have starved to death. Probably, these scientists have concluded recently, it would not mean extinction. 1% or less, or 2% might survive in Australia and New Zealand eating mollusks and fish from the oceans, but 98% would be gone, essentially. And you'd have, in other words, we have had all this time, without realizing it until the 80s, a doomsday machine. But we've maintained it. Oh, the doomsday machine, of course, is a notion that figures in Dr. Strangelove, the heart of the, the uh, theme in the end. An idea invented at Rand by my then colleague Herman Kahn, who conjectured a deterrent system which would destroy all life on Earth automatically. But he said that has never existed and will never exist. It's a concept, just to make a, a rhetorical point. It kills too many people. In fact, everybody. So as Teller said at the time, there could not be omnicide from his weapons, H-bombs. But he was thinking at that time about fallout, which was the idea, uh, which was the mechanism, uh, the effect involved in the movie uh, On the Beach. Uh, and the DOD, the Department Department pointed out at the time, we don't have enough thermonuclear weapons to kill everybody with fallout, especially when the explosions are in the northern hemisphere and so forth. But the smoke would have done it just then. We had, or earlier, in fact, even with A-bombs, that's enough to burn the cities. By Truman's time, 1951-52, with a thousand A-bombs now, mostly targeted on cities, if those had been used in the Berlin crisis or a little later in the Cuban crisis, we wouldn't be here. Because the burned cities and the smoke would have acted, in fact, as a doomsday weapon. And we didn't, we didn't know it. Herman was wrong. Teller was wrong that you couldn't do this. Um, no, nobody's perfect. They made a mistake. Since we've known it, since the early 80s, the DOD has essentially ignored this. They've calculated, but as far as I know or the scientists that I've talked to know, no president has actually been briefed on the effects of his different options against Russia. Smaller, intermediate, large. The smaller ones make no sense, you know, in a conflict with Russia. Escalation would be virtually certain. Doomsday would be virtually certain with uh, uh, the nuclear weapons. And, and it would be virtually certain even if there was never a second strike back at the United States. The first strike we is enough to do it. Alan Roebuck, a leading environmental scientist on this, and Brian Toon also, have written a book, have written an essay for the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists called Self-Assured Destruction, not mad, but sad, self-assured destruction. A war between the U.S. and Russia would be suicidal for each and essentially omnicidal, to use a term of John Somerville, a philosopher, killing everything, not quite everything. Some humans would almost surely survive to do it all again, in effect. But most larger animals would not. They're not as adaptable as we are. They can't move thousands of miles to a different uh, latitude. Uh, they don't have uh, fire and houses and whatnot. They would all die, as happened under the dinosaurs. In Dr. Strangelove, Strangelove 
says build in deep mine shafts, build bunkers, build a whole underground civilization to survive this. The one percent is essentially uh, preparing for that. To that's some what I meant. And were they at your survivalists? Time? Did you have a bunker to go to? Uh, I did, did you not. Have a I did not, but. Uh, my boss, head of the Rand uh, Economics Division, Charlie Hitch, later controller in the Defense Department, did build a bomb shelter. And actually, uh, Willard Libby of the Atomic Energy Commission had a bomb shelter during the missile crisis, which burned about that time. Uh, which Edward Teller, which uh, Leo Zavard said, that proved that not only God exists, but he had a sense of humor. Do they have now? Some kind of underground that uh, elites can I go to? I think that planning for either climate change or nuclear weapons or a winter is, we know, going on by the billionaires, by uh, some fraction of them, survivalists who do plan to survive all this and possibly could if they can get down to New Zealand and have their bubble atmosphere in effect and their robots working for them and their... Um, uh, their own uh, artificial sunlight and whatnot during this, grow some crops during that. I think they actually, some of them figure on surviving. It won't be America. Uh, it won't be anywhere uh, that exists today, particularly. It'll be like living in a submarine, essentially. But, and some people do that for months at a time. And our nuclear submarines, each one of them capable of destroying most life on Earth. We have 14. In his book, Doomsday Machine, Daniel Ellsberg writes, The strategic nuclear system is more prone to false alarms, accidents, and unauthorized launches than the public, and even most high officials, has ever been aware. This was my special focus of classified investigations in 1958 to 61. Later studies have confirmed the persistence of these risks with particularly serious false alarms in 1979, Potentially catastrophic dangers such as these have been systematically concealed from the public. In 1961, I had learned as an insider that our secret nuclear decision-making policy, plans, and practices for general nuclear war endangered, by the JCS estimate, hundreds of millions of people, perhaps a third of the Earth's population. What none of us knew at the time, not the Joint Chiefs, not the President or his science advisors, not anyone else for the next two decades until 1983, were the phenomena of nuclear winter and nuclear famine, which meant that a large nuclear war of the kind we prepared for then or later would kill nearly every human on Earth, along with most other large species. It's the smoke, after all, not the fallout which would remain mostly limited to the northern hemisphere, that would do it worldwide. Smoke and soot lofted by fierce firestorms in hundreds of burning cities into the stratosphere, where it would not rain out and would remain for a decade or more, enveloping the globe and blocking most sunlight, lowering annual global temperatures to the level of the last ice age, and killing all harvests worldwide, 
causing near-universal starvation within a year or two. There would be no limiting of damage to the superpower attacker or to its allies or the enemy population or that of neutrals throughout the globe by its superpower adversary striking first rather than second, even without suffering retaliation, or by its preemption, counterforce, or decapitation attacks. In short, by any of the missions the great bulk of its weapons are specifically designed and intended to do. Damage to itself and to everyone else from its own first strike would be total, unlimited. There is no sign that the findings of the latest scientific, peer-reviewed studies of climatic consequences of nuclear war over the past decade have penetrated the consciousness of U.S. officials or Russian officials or have influenced in any way their nuclear deployments or arms control negotiations. Whether or not President Donald Trump has been briefed on this, almost surely not, both he and several of his cabinet officials, along with leaders of the Republican majority in Congress, are famous deniers of the scientific authority of such findings, based as they are on the most advanced climate models. Please join us for the next segment of our series with Daniel Ellsberg on Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network.